So last Sunday, we, we launched a new series in the book of Ephesians, and uh, we began with an introduction, and I, I, I didn't finish it, uh, so I'm going to do that now, and then we're going to get into uh, grace and peace, right? We've been singing about that, uh, well, at least grace we've been singing about so far this morning, and so... Uh, the focus will be on grace and peace because we're in chapter 1, verse, I believe we'll be in 2 for the most part this morning. But I'm going to wrap up that introduction. There was a, a few things that I didn't have time to say last week, and we'll get to it. Uh, what did we cover basically last week? We covered who wrote the letter of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, who he wrote it to, the believers at Ephesus, which was a primary major city in Asia Minor. And so that's basically what we covered. This morning, we'll tackle the what, where, and when of Ephesians, and then also verse 2. So I think it's befitting to pray one more time and to get to work. Yeah? Amen? All right. I just closed my prayer before I even did it with the amen. Father, open our hearts and minds to the truth, to grace and peace. That's what you have for us today. And uh, that's what we're going to study and look at. And so I pray that, uh, that the Word of God would not fall upon deaf ears, that you would open our ears and our minds to the truth, and that you would transform us, sanctify us, edify us, build us up by the power of the Word, Hebrews 4.12 says. It's powerful. It's a double-edged sword. It cuts through the deepest parts of who we are. And so um, I haven't come here as a particular type of fill, to leave as that particular type of fill. I want to be changed. I want to be more like Jesus. And I know that's the heart cry of believers. And so we pray that you would help that to happen today, just a little bit more in our lives. And we give you this time, be glorified here. And we pray this in the matchless, mighty name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. amen. So the what of Ephesians? What, what, what? What are we talking about? What? What is the purpose of Ephesians? What is the purpose of the letter? Why did Paul write Ephesians, uh, Thomas Goodwin, an old, and I just got his commentary on, on Ephesians, and it's 608 pages just on the first chapter and a little bit of the second chapter. So you can imagine uh, what has been written on, you know, the Bible, but narrowed down to just on Ephesians, just on the first chapter. So much has been said about it, so much has been written, because it's so doctrinally amazing. It's an amazing, amazing chapter. I think it's going to become my favorite chapter in all of Scripture. I don't know. I'm headed there. Uh, but Thomas Goodwin was a, a, an old uh, Puritan, and uh, he thinks that uh, the purpose or reason why it was written, that it has to do with the character of the church in Ephesus. It's kind of his angle. Um, he quotes the Greek orator Philostratus as having called Ephesus a city that excelled all other cities in wisdom and learning and overabounded in thousands of learned men. Uh, some of this genius in Ephesus and curiosity for learning had led the educated class in the city astray, uh, of course, uh, to study magic and esoteric traditions uh, and it was to their harm. Uh, you may recall when we were studying the book of Acts together, when Paul went into the city and started to proclaim the gospel, a whole lot of people got saved and started burning their magic books, their books about magic and these things. 
And so it was an interesting community and area, and these people were learners, but they went after just about every form of learning. Anything that came down the pike, they were focused on. Um, We read about that earlier in Acts 19, where they renounced some of those ideas and all that. The super eminent self-denial, muses Goodwin, might be the reason why God honored uh, them, that congregation, if you will, with an epistle so sublime by way of recompense. And so his idea is that God graced them and blessed them and had the letter written to them and distributed to them, given to them, sent to them for the purpose of blessing them because of how they responded to the gospel, because they renounced the magic and the, and the religion and all of those things entrusted in the gospel. That's what he purports. And that's, that's a really interesting angle. In a sense, the Ephesians were being like Paul, who counted his previous intellectual attainments, but as dung and as dog's meat for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. You remember how he said, I was this, I was this, I was this, I knew this, I knew this, I knew this. And I, and I, ran, I renounce all of it in favor of knowing Christ, that what I was and what I knew pales in comparison to the knowledge of Christ, is what Paul actually wrote. And so... Goodwin thinks that this is kind of the same thing playing out here. The Ephesians were like Paul. They renounced everything else. Not all of them, but most of these Christians here renounced everything else. And they went after the gospel wholeheartedly. And this book is a reward in a way. Uh, And we think of also maybe Moses. He knew what was to be gained from the best Egyptian education and, and the culture. But he renounced it all for the sake of God's revealed truth, it says in Hebrews, right? So that's an interesting angle. It's, I don't know if we'd call it a reward, but maybe a gift, God's gift of response to them for renouncing their ways and all of that. So that's an interesting way to look at it. That's what Goodwin thinks it is. Uh, I agree and disagree. Um, James Montgomery Boyce, he propounds that Ephesians was written for practical reasons. Um, He wrote, it tells us, and this is his kind of boil down of the book, if you will, it tells us who we are, how we came to be as we are, what we shall be, and what we must do in light of that destiny. That's kind of his take on this whole book. John Stott said this, he said, the whole letter, speaking of Ephesians, is thus a magnificent combination of Christian doctrine and Christian duty, Christian faith and Christian life. What God has done through Christ and what we must be and do in consequence. Now, I really like, I like the Goodwin theory. I think it's kind of interesting. I can see God doing that because he loves his children, he loves his people, and he gifts them and graces them and blesses them. But I tend to agree with Boyce and Stott more. Uh, Chapters 1 through 3, if you just do a, a quick, you know, surface level study of the book of Ephesians, you could literally just go through and read the little section titles. You don't even have to study the book. Just read the section titles to see what's going on in each paragraph. Um, You will find the first three chapters really do have to do with what Christ has done for his people. The first three chapters, it's all about what God has done. It's all about what Christ has accomplished for his people, for his church. That's the first three chapters. And then the last three chapters, four through six, have to do with how his people should live as a result of what Christ has done. Literally, 
Now, we could, defi- we could divide Ephesians like this. We could. Chapter 1, and this is just as basic as you can get, and believe me, we're going to study the book in much more detail than this, but this is a basic overview. Chapter 1, all of our spiritual blessings are in Christ. That's a major theme in chapter 1. Chapter 2, the grace of Christ is what saves and nourishes us, and we are one in Christ. That's chapter 2 boiled down. Chapter 3, the mystery of the gospel has been revealed to us through Jesus Christ. So those are the first three chapters. Now, in light of those rock-solid, life-changing, mind-blowing doctrinal truths, we have chapter 4, live in unity with other believers and live the new life that Christ has given you and created you to live. Chapter 5, walk in, in light of those truths, in light of what's been done for you, walk in love and honor Christ in your marriage. Chapter uh, 6, that was chapter 5 before, chapter 6, honor Christ in your family, honor Christ by submitting to authority, and clothe yourselves in the whole armor of God so that you can withstand the attacks of the evil one. So, The book is literally divided in three chapters on what Christ has accomplished and empowered us to do, and the last three chapters have to do with do it, live it, live it out. You have the propensity, you have the ability, you have the power in the Holy Spirit to actually live out these things that he's commanding. Why? Because of the first three chapters, because of what's been done for you. And you can kind of just imagine or maybe, maybe you'll understand why I'm so serious about doctrine at this church. Why we're so serious about doctrine at this church. Without doctrine, without understanding the clear truths of Scripture, without understanding what Christ has accomplished, there is no doxology, which means worship. Doxology, they say today in many churches, it divides churches. It causes division. No, it doesn't. The purpose of doctrine is to produce doxology, translation, worship. When you know God more and understand his truth and understand what he's accomplished for you and his attributes, the the breadth of his being and who he is and his work, what does that produce in the life of a believer? Worship! Really, you've done these things for me? This is it? This is what you're about? This is what your mercy looks like? This is this doctrine? Yes, that is the purpose. And in a way, doctrine does divide. Hebrews 4.12 divides the man in a way. It It can be divisive in a sense in that if a church holds to true doctrine and another church doesn't, then it's pretty hard to have fellowship and there's going to be a division. But you must understand the purpose of doctrine is unity in the church and worship in the church. And therefore, we must give ourselves to the careful, systematic study of doctrine. It's so important. And guess what? It's not happening in churches today, friends. What's happening is here's three ways to improve your marriage. If you give me doctrine, if you tell me what Christ has done for me, and you do it in a doctrinal, systematic way, my marriage will improve. But if you just keep telling me to fix my marriage by jumping through these hoops and all that, I do that for a week, and then I drift right back into my old ways. Because there's nothing transformative about marital instruction, unless it's coming from the Word of God, unless it's doctrinally based. And so it's so vital that we do this. So that is Ephesians in a nutshell, right? First three chapters, what Christ has done and accomplished for us. All our blessings and spiritual blessings and life and all that is in him. And then here's how we live. That is it in a nutshell. 
So chapters 1 through 3, here's what he's done. Chapters 3 through 6, here's how we respond and live our lives. Uh, We might want to think of it like this. It's Christ's work first and then our obedience and work follows. You see, this is so essential that we understand that it is Christ first and what he's accomplished, and then our work and obedience follows. Because if we flip those things, we end up with false religion. Because if it all begins with us and what we're doing and cleaning ourselves up and fixing ourselves and making ourselves pretty and, and, and attractive to God somehow through religion and these things, and then, you know, when we're doing all of this so that we can try to gain God's attention and favor and all that, we just ended up with Islam. We just ended up with Mormonism. We just ended up with Jehovah's Witnessism. We just ended up with Catholicism because it's gone off the rails now. It's a gospel of what Christ has done and what you do, or vice versa, is what Catholicism is now. And so, and, and I'm, I'm just telling you guys, the church in so many ways, and I'm not talking about the Catholic church, I'm not talking about Mormonism, I'm talking about any of that. The evangelical church in America, somehow over the last 100, 150 years or so, maybe, I, I don't know, maybe a little less than that, has got them backwards. We've got to fix ourselves up here first, and then God's going to react That's not the gospel. That's a false gospel, man. And that's what the devil wants all of us to believe. He wants us to preach that. He wants us to tell people to do things. That's what he wants because it's a false gospel. And it doesn't deliver on salvation, the salvation of God or the promises of God. It doesn't. It frustrates it. Messes it up. And so I'm very excited to teach through Ephesians because it's the, it's, it's the most sublime expression, declaration of, exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It really is. It's amazing, and we're going to enjoy it. All right. Now, another thing to consider in terms of why this book was written, the purpose of it, is that we must consider the background, the context as I said earlier, if Ephesus was a fairly large city in Asia Minor, it had about 250,000 people back in Paul's day. And, and to us, we would say, well, that's, you know, almost the size of Modesto. That's maybe Stockton, you know. And so we don't think of Modesto and Stockton as being very large cities. Not when you have San Jose over here in San Francisco and Oakland and Sacramento and Fresno, right? But in those days, 250,000 people living in one city was massive. That was a New York that was, that was huge. People just were very rural back then. They lived in, you know, farming communities and stuff like that. And so this was a massive, massive city, and it was on a very, very busy trade route, which made it sort of a cultural melting pot. There was a lot of different ethnic groups and people that lived there, a lot of different forms of religion in these things. And so uh, it would have been very much like one of our port cities, maybe Seattle or something of that nature, San Francisco. It was a cultural melting pot. Lots and lots of people, a lot of commerce, and a lot of people traveling through there doing trade and business. And of course, like other big cities in its day and today, it had multiple forms of false religion and idolatry going on. Artemis, the Greco-Roman goddess of uh, virginity and motherhood, was the central figure in Ephesus. There was a huge temple that had been built and dedicated to her prior to Paul's passing through there and writing this letter. In fact, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 
it was that magnificent of an, a structure. It was massive. It was huge. It had these a rotunda and, and these columns, and it was just unbelievable. And you could see it as you, um, you know, it, it like was nestled by uh, one area where a little river kind of dived into it. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, as you're coming up this river into this port, bam, there was this towering structure, this massive, massive structure that would have just been mind-blowing. It would have been mind-blowing. And so uh, that was the, the sort of centralized religion, if you will, Artemis, this Greco-Roman, really Greek, but the Romans had a version of it too, and, uh, or maybe that was the Roman version of it, and the Greek version was a different name. I don't know. They, it's like the same gods. They just changed the name up. But anyways, that was the god of that city, if you will. Her temple was one of the seven wonders. It was unbelievable. People spent the majority of their time in that community, in that city, literally trying to live good lives, trying to do all the right things so that Artemis would love, accept, and favor them. That's the religion of that community. Well, we've got this, you know, we've got this meteorite rock, and they literally did inside the temple, and they thought that that was part of the deal with Artemis, and this temple was devoted to her, and, and you know, they were into idol making and all this stuff there. It was crazy, but it all had to do with earning their way with Artemis. That was the religion there, kind of like people do here in our nation, right? American religion and Ephesian religion are basically the same thing, do good things, and God will like you. That's American religion. Uh, these were the challenges now, if you will, that Paul faced when he first visited Ephesus. And this letter shows that, that, that some of those challenges continued on and they continued to plague the church years after he left, right? Because think about it. Again, what is the book? How is it structured? Here's what Christ has done, not Artemis. Here's what Christ has done. Here's how you live in response to that. So the whole letter is basically countering the false religion of the entire world, but more particularly of Ephesus. And that's a really good rationale for this letter. He's, Paul is writing it intentionally trying to counter the false belief system that they had there. Now let's move to the where. Where was Ephesians written? Ephesians was written while Paul was on house arrest, jail if you will, for two years in Rome. That was how we closed out the book of Acts, if you remember, chapter 28, 16 through 31. We kind of wrapped up the series with that whole section on him going to Rome. Uh, he had been sent there to face trial. He was incarcerated on house arrest. And so this is the time during that two-year stint there. He was released after that and went and did several more years of ministry before he was martyred. But for the most part, that's when this letter was written. He also wrote Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon during that time. And Paul was extraordinarily productive while he was locked up. And, and that's, just, that's just mind-blowing to me. Uh, you know, I, 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 I know for a fact I know me, I don't think I would be very productive if I were locked up. Um, I would probably be very seclusive and hiding. And, and here this, this gentleman, Paul, this amazing saint, was so active and busy for the ministry of the gospel while in jail, writing these four letters in a two-year period. And they're deep, and they're profound, and they're doctrinal. It's amazing. He, he had people coming all the time to, to his house where he was on arrest and ministering to them and proclaiming the gospel and handing out letters to be distributed. I mean, it's just unreal the kind of ministry this guy had going. It's mind-blowing. Not to mention his cheerful joyful disposition, his cheerful, joyful attitude, which are so clearly seen 
in his prison letters, especially Ephesus. Uh, Have you ever really gone beyond just the simple reading that Jen did and just focused on Ephesians 3, 14 to 21? We just had that read. Have you ever just stopped there and, and looked at that passage and noticed what's happening in that particular passage? You know, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, Paul wrote about the ministry, not the ministry, the mystery of the gospel being revealed, and that was that Gentiles are included in God's global plan of salvation. What a wonderful, that that was a, a shrouded ideology in the Old Testament. You know, it wasn't clear in the Old Testament, God's plan of salvation, the entirety of it. In the New Testament, we see it in its fullest sense, and that is the inclusion of Gentiles, non-Jewish people in it. And then, so that's what he's talking about the first part of the chapter. And then in 14, his emotions began to peak. He, he, he really started to think about what he's writing and, and the impact of God's truth coming through him and this mystery being revealed. So his emotions heighten and they begin to peak. He began, he became sort of overwhelmed with joy and began to pray that the Ephesians would be filled with the power and presence of Christ so that they would be able to comprehend the mystery of the gospel and its depth and width and those things that you heard. So he's he's writing this doctrine, he's proclaiming it with a pen, and then he gets overwhelmed by it, filled with joy, and he begins to explode in prayer. And then in verse 20, it totally culminates, erupts, explodes in total and absolute doxology, right? He just got lost in Christ and he began to praise and glorify him. You see that at the end of chapter, or not at the end of chapter 3, but at the end of that little section? It's like he's talking earlier, he's talking about the mystery of the gospel and that he's praying for them that they'd be able to comprehend it in its deeper way like he is right at that moment. And then he just goes off into doxology and starts talking about the praise of Christ, the praise of God. It's just amazing, which is the right response to doctrine. Not, well, that's not fair. Why would you do that, God? Or that's confusing. You see, when we come face to face with doctrine, it should produce within us joy and elation and praise, not, I don't like that view of election. I don't like, I don't think that's fair. I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't like how that applies to me. That's what we do typically when we come up face-to-face with mysterious, challenging, difficult doctrines. But the truth is, Paul gives us an example in chapter 3 right there, that it should produce not a bunch of questioning, not a bunch of doubt, not a bunch of criticism, but it should produce worship. When we begin to understand these doctrines, in particular there in chapter 3, context, not the doctrine of election, it is the doctrine of the mystery of the gospel being revealed. Doesn't that just stir something in you when you start to think about the fact that his plan of salvation included you if you're a believer? What? That's amazing. And that's what Paul is trying to come to terms with there. So it was written for a number of reasons. Um, And it was written from that place in Ephesus, that jail cell it was written from. Now, when was Ephesians written? And this is the shortest part of the who, what, where, when, why, or when, if we will. Uh, There is some debate about when Ephesians was written, but most historians and scholars say between 60 and 62 AD. 60 and 62 AD. I think Paul was martyred in 67. So uh, just shortly after he wrote these, he went back out and did more ministry 
and, and then after that he was martyred. So it looks like 60 to 62 A.D. Now, that the introduction is somewhat complete, I suppose you could talk about these things endlessly. Um, let's move to verse 2 because that's where I really wanted to be all morning. And I just spilled all over myself. Could have used a straw. Verse 2, read it with me. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it, stop. You just, it, that's just it. That's just it. <laughs> it's, we're done. We're done. Amen. Let's get out of here. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at Paul's epistles, all of them, I think there's 13, maybe Hebrews, and, and, and I don't know about that for sure, but 13 of them, you will notice that he used this line, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He used that line or one very similar to it in each of those epistles, in each of his letters. Interestingly, this was a common greeting among believers in the early church. So it wasn't Paul alone that used this. This was a common greeting. Uh, the Jews greeted one another with number 6, 24 to 26, right? You might know this. They would say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That was a very common back in that day and this day too. And in the Old Testament times, that was a common greeting amongst Jews to Jews. They would recite Numbers 6, 24 to 26. And then Christians would say to one another, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that was the Christian sort of greeting to one another. So Paul, we can deduce that Paul used a common salutation here in this letter and at the beginning of pretty much, yeah, all of his other letters. But let's just ponder it for a moment. Let's spend some time on it. The two primary doctrines mentioned right there in that little tiny simple verse are grace and peace. Now think about it. It might be a common salutation, but are those common doctrines? No. No, 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 no. No, 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 they're not. They're not common doctrines. The grace of God is uh, a majestic and mysterious and mind-blowing doctrine. Millions of words and thousands and thousands of books and hundreds of thousands of pages have been written about grace, explaining grace, trying to understand grace over the centuries. It's true. So grace isn't all that common. It's pretty insane. And what does the peace of God do? It transcends what? All understanding, it says in Scripture. So peace isn't all that simple either. It isn't all that common either, is it, right? No, it's not. Lots has been said about, about peace and grace. These are massive doctrines. Paul understood this. And quite frankly, his desire was that Christians, the Christians he wrote to, the Ephesians, uh, would experience the grace and peace of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in all of its fullness. And in each of his letters, he worked to expound those doctrines and many others so that his readers would grow and mature in the faith, so that they would be able to grasp those things more clearly. So what I'm saying is, is that Paul wasn't trying to underplay or downplay those doctrines by using it as a common salutation. 
Not at all. He knows the depth of it. He's going to expound on it in this epistle. So it wasn't in any way an undermining of those things. Now, the grace word, the word grace here is packed with meaning and a zillion implications. Uh, in Greek, it is haris, spelled C-H-A-R-R-I-S or one R, C-H-A-R-I-S. You would think it's charis, but, you know, it's, it's Greek, so it doesn't sound like what we would say. I'm saying haris. Um, that's what it is. And what it is it defined is God's kindness toward those who are undeserving of his favor, but who have placed their faith in his son, Jesus Christ. So to greet a Christian brother or sister in this way was much more than a wish for their general well-being. It is also an acknowledgement of the divine grace in which we stand, in which was made, and which has made us members of Christ's body, the church, and of God's family. Now, so it's, it's, it's got a, a deeper, deeper meaning to it there than just a salutation. It is an affirmation of who we are in Christ as recipients of God's grace. It's pretty amazing. Now, Paul loved to write about Horus, grace. He loved to write about it in his epistles. Listen to some of the passages he wrote about it. And, 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 and consequently, it's so important for us to recognize that grace in these passages is haris. It's the same thing as what he wrote in Ephesians 1-2. So it's the same meaning. It has the same meaning, the same implications. So this stuff would be packed into what he's saying in chapter 1, verse 2. Romans 6, 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under haris, grace. What Paul is saying is grace has a sort of separating kind of consequence and effect to it. You know, it separates you from sin. You're not under, sin doesn't have dominion over, you're not ruled by it because you're under grace, not the law is what he says. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 9, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep him humble, right? To keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my Horus, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What's he saying about Horus here, grace? He's saying that it is sufficient, that it is all you need, that it sustains. Believe it or not, that's packed into Ephesians 2, Ephesians 1, 2. Talking about Horus. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, but by the Horus, grace of God, I am what I am. Grace has made him a believer. And his grace, Horus, toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. He's speaking of the other apostles because his apostleship was attacked by these believers. Though, and he says, though it was not I basically doing the work, but the hottest, the grace of God that is with me. What's he saying here? Grace has an empowering effect to it. It is what propels ministry. Same meaning in a way in Ephesians 1, 2. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we'll get there in about 12 years. For by hardest you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. What is he saying about hardest here? It has a saving effect to it. Grace 
saves, right? So you've got all these little category things here that have to do with grace. It's a saving grace. 2 Thessalonians 2.16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through hardest grace. Wow. So grace has a comforting effect to it because it tells us that we're eternally secured so we don't have to have anxiety and worry about life and things that happen and circumstances. That's packed into Ephesians 1, 2. 2 Timothy 2, 1. I will beat you to death with these, by the way. I hope you don't get tired of them. <laughs> and I could see how. Can you just move on to the next part? We're talking about grace. One of the most meaningful things to you in your life should be the grace of God. Always and forever. And I'm not saying that because I believe people here are tuning out. I'm basically warning myself because I'm reading these things. 2 Timothy 2, 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by hottest. That is in Christ Jesus by grace. So grace has a strengthening effect to it, doesn't it? Listen to this stuff about grace. It's amazing. Titus 2, 11 to 12. For the hottest of grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, all types, all ethnic groups. Read Revelation 7, 9. There's so many we can't number them. The church isn't small people, and it isn't just white. There's a lot of different ethnic groups in the church. Christ is pouring out his grace on all sorts of, favor, all sorts of people. And what else does grace do here in this verse? Uh, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled lives, upright and godly lives in the present age. So grace has an instructional component to it, right? Because it teaches us how to live a godly life and to please God with our lives and to help the church and to bless the church and to bless one another and to be a witness to this lost and hopeless, seemingly hopeless world. One more, Titus 3, 3 to 7. For we ourselves were once foolish. He's speaking of believers. He's speaking of us in the past, our old man, how we used to be. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Uh, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his hardest grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So grace has what? A justifying, making us right before God effect. Beloved, all of these things are packed into Ephesians 1, 2 in the mention of Hardis. It's deep, it's profound, it's mind-blowing. I hope you're being blessed. This is good stuff. This is very, very good stuff. When Paul wrote Ephesians 1, 2, as I said, he had all of this stuff in mind. And that's why he gave into doxology a little later in chapter 3. And there's other places in other parts of his epistles where he breaks out in doxology as he unfolds these doctrines. These doctrines for the Apostle Paul produced doxology, worship, joy, adoration. So grace 
wasn't merely a salutation. It was the first part of his declaration about what God had given to these folks, right? That's it. Grace to you from God. It's the first part. It's the first facet of his declaration as to how God was going to bless these people, how he was blessing them. You know, they had the grace of God in all of its blessings. Chapter 1 illustrates that all of our spiritual blessings, the grace and all of that are in Christ. They in a, in a sense, I think probably knew that, but Paul is at least at the very minimum here, he is reminding them of that by saying grace to them in Ephesians 1, 2. It's a reminder by him saying God's grace to you, all of it, all the blessing and all the richness of that. Now let's move to peace. Peace flows from grace. Peace flows from grace, or as MacArthur put it, Grace is the fountain of which peace is the stream. Grace is the fountain of which peace is the stream. Because we have grace from God, we have peace with God and the peace of God. Peace is erene in Greek, which in its simplest terms means freedom from worry. Its meaning is Quite a bit broader than that in Ephesians 1, 2 here, but that would be a very simple way to, to understand erene, the Greek for it, and that's that it's the freedom from worry. Because, right, peace is the absence of worry. Worry is the absence of peace. And so, in a very generic sort of way, that's what it means. But I'm telling you, it's deeper here. The New Testament speaks of two kinds of peace. The objective peace that has to do with your relationship to God and the subjective peace that has to do with your experience in life. We're going to focus on the objective peace because that's what Paul is speaking about here in Ephesians 1-2. We must understand that the natural man lacks peace with God. You know, that guy who's not saved, that guy who does not know Christ yet, those whom we pray for and hope that they get saved. They do not have peace with God. They can live seemingly peaceful lives in a way, but they are literally at war with God. They are, in a spiritual sense. We all come into the world fighting against God because we are part of the rebellion that started with Adam and Eve. Romans 5.10 says, we were enemies of God. We fought against God, and everything we did militated against His principles, But when we receive Jesus Christ, we cease being enemies of God. We make a truce with Him. We come over to His side, and the hostility is ended. Jesus Christ wrote the treaty with the blood of His cross. That treaty, that bond, that covenant of peace declares the objective fact that we are now at peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace, erene, with God. We who trust in Christ are redeemed and declared righteous by faith. Our sins are forgiven. Rebellion ceases. The war is over, and we have peace with God. It's wonderful. Colossians 1, 20 to 22 says that Christ made peace through the blood of the cross. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. A sinful, vile, wicked person cannot come into the presence of of a holy God. Something must make that unholy person, that unholy, 
unrighteous person righteous before he can have peace with God. And that's exactly what Christ did. Dying for sin, imputing his righteousness to sinners. So Paul says we are no longer enemies but are at peace with God because we have been reconciled through Christ's finished work. It's as if God were on one side and we were on the other and then Christ filled the gap, taking the hand of God and the hand of man and placing them together in the same grip. We now have been brought together through the blood of Christ, the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. We have peace with God because of what he's done. Now, these things have to do with the objective peace that all believers have. We might be able to think of the doctrine of peace in a similar way to the doctrine of sanctification. The doctrine of sanctification, as you might remember from previous sermons, is twofold. There is a permanent sanctification that takes place at the moment of regeneration and faith, and then there's an ongoing process of sanctification that we are somewhat responsible for as we engage in the means of grace and be conformed to the image of Christ. Peace is similar. Peace has been established with God once and for all for the believer, but guess what he must do? He must take a hold of it and live it out and become a peacemaker, as it says in Matthew chapter 5, because blessed are the peacemakers. Peace is something that we have. It never changes with God, but it's also something that we must work at. It's something that we have to pursue. It's something that we have to lay a hold of, right? Because it's not indicative of our sinful human nature to be at peace with ourselves or with anyone else. And yet, the Holy Spirit overcomes that for us at times and gives us grace and mercy and we seek peace. But we might think of peace in the same kind of way as sanctification. It's a done deal with God, but we have to pursue it with one another. Understand? It's a profound doctrine. It's deep. And it is exactly what Paul is pointing to in Ephesians 1, 2. Grace in all of its depth, in all of its beauty, in all of its majesty, and peace in all of its profundity, in all of its transcendency. That's what he's pointing to when he says this. God has all of this for you people and a bag of chips. Pretty amazing. What a blessing. Lastly, Paul wrote, and this is massive. This is key. I'm trying not to bring it down the front. Get on the mic, and then I'd, <laughs> you know. That, that'd, be, that'd be exciting. People would be like, that's the most exciting thing he said in the sermon. Hey, 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 hey. Lastly, Paul wrote, from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ who give grace and peace. It's only them. You ain't going to find it anywhere else. It can't be found anywhere else. You can find temporal kinds of it, fleshly, worldly copies of it. But it's only them that give it. Grace and peace. Again, who was this letter written to? The Ephesian believers. It was written to Christians. So grace and peace are dual blessings that God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give to all true believers. And when Paul says it, it isn't really Paul saying it or giving it. It's God saying it, declaring it, and giving it. Paul is saying this for us, believers, Our grace 
As Jesus sits on his throne and reigns and rules over the universe, and as God the Father is is being worshipped, holy, 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 this amazing sight that's happening up there, they are saying to the church in Ephesus, grace and peace from us to you. Right there through the Apostle Paul. Amazing, amazing, amazing. That makes me want to weep. Because life is hard. The faith can be hard. Life is difficult. We have a powerful adversary. Our flesh gets the best of us at times. And it's amazing to know that grace and peace come to us from Father and the Son. But there is also an authoritative connotation here. And that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ have not only bestowed grace and peace upon the Ephesian believers, but they are also in charge. You see, we might think that Paul is, is, you know, you need to listen to me and what I'm saying in writing. Paul isn't writing on his own behalf. Paul's pen was moving, guided by the authority of the Godhead. God is saying this is coming from us and we are ruling, reigning, supreme, sovereign in charge. Lord is kurios in Greek and it means one who exercises supernatural authority over mankind. The common uh, way to define kurios would be master. Master. It's Master Jesus Christ. And you must understand as a believer that uh, we are in a Master, Kyrios, and Slave, Dulos, relationship with God. He is our Lord and Master, and we are His slaves. And and I know that that brings to mind all kinds of crazy thoughts and ugliness and and, and, and slavery in, in the worldly sense. Ugly, are you kidding me? We should condemn it as much as we can in all of our strength. But this is not that kind of master slave relationship here. It's of one of infinite beauty, spectacular grace, mind blowing peace. Incredible purpose. You see, our master, he doesn't beat us with whips when we make mistakes, when we do something wrong, when we don't obey. He leads us with gentleness, with kindness, because the kindness of God leads to... Thank you. He, He leads us with mercy, and he leads us in grace, and he's infinitely patient with his children, unlike I am with my kids when they're not taking the trash out when they should. You see, those who know Christ rightly in a saving way willfully lay down their lives in submission and servitude to Jesus Christ, to the Lord. It is their joy to do that. They love Christ as their 
master. They're okay with being his slave. They're okay with being a slave of righteousness rather than a slave of sin because that's what you become when you pass from death to life. A slave of Christ, what does it mean? A slave of what is right, what he has decreed to be right. You see, that's our joy. That's what we want as a new creation, as a new person. I want to please Christ, and I get it. It's a daily battle, but that's our new disposition. Now, the Hebrew equivalent of or to kyrios is Adonai. You've heard that word, maybe, Adonai. It's an interesting word. It's actually a replacement word for Yahweh. Jews in the second and third century, centuries B.C., actually, were afraid to call God by His name. They revered Him to the point of not saying Yahweh. And so they came up with the title Adonai, Lord. It's an interesting little tidbit of truth. Adonai appears in the Old Testament about 440 or so times. But it is a Kyrios and Dulos relationship. It's so important that you know this. In fact, there's scriptures that warn us. They say things like, those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Kyrios, Jesus Christ. Not just Jesus Christ, but the Kyrios, Jesus Christ, Lord, Master. Do I believe in lordship salvation? Absolutely, because your Bible teaches it a million times over. Jesus Christ must be one's Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that you understand all of the you know, implications of that and you spend your life as a believer trying to learn those things and figure those things out and how to submit to him. But let me tell you something. No one gets saved apart from believing and affirming the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is Lord If he is the Lord of all creation, Colossians 3, then he must be the Lord of his people. And so you cannot divorce lordship from salvation in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. He is our Kyrios. He is our Adonai. And if you're a believer, you are his doulos, slave. And he's a benevolent Master, infinitely wise, infinitely kind, gracious, peaceful with us, merciful. Oh, he's wonderful. He is so wonderful. In fact, if you, if you have yet to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, I would say that you should do that because you've been submitting to so many other things that are not going to satisfy you. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can satisfy. And and that's one of the things that the first three chapters of Ephesians illustrate through all these wonderful doctrines. The Lord Jesus Christ is unlike any. He's amazing. He's beyond. He he is... Wow. (laughs) He is our life. So, in closing, what might we take away from this amazing verse, the simple yet profound, tiny little verse. How about we take away what God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ bestowed upon the Ephesian believers? 
How about grace and peace? You see, uh, the Ephesian letter was, in a sense, targeted to particular believers in a, in a particular congregation in a particular city, but, but it was also a broader letter. It was distributed amongst many other churches in, in the Ephesian area and beyond in Asia Minor. It was circulated throughout Asia Minor and beyond. We have our, we are so blessed to have it here in our Bibles. And God's intent with it was to not only bless and bestow His grace and peace upon the Ephesians, but every believer who reads it. Um, It's universal in a sense. It doesn't belong to the world and to those who are alienated and enemies of God. It belongs to the church. It is Let's just think of it like this. What you're reading was written for them and for every other true believer, including you. If you're a believer, this grace and peace are yours. These blessings are yours. These blessings are mine. I need them. I get so frustrated with myself. Sanctification isn't easy. It isn't easy to become like Christ. I got a whole lot of flesh, and a lot of times it's way out of control. And I know you do too. I don't know what, believer, I don't know what your struggle is this week, where you're at, what you're dealing with, what kind of warfare you've been engaged in, what kind of tragedy you've experienced, what kind of letdowns, what kind of hurt. What kind of injustice or just what kind of stupid we've all engaged in in the last week. God wants you to know that despite that grace and peace, it's yours, it's mine. How should we? What a mess. How should we live in light of grace and peace in submission to our master? Grace and peace have been freely given and our only response is submission to the Lord. He gave them that we might and could submit and live for him we are his doulos we are his slaves and so let this be our mantra this week and I want you to repeat this after me ready and I want you to say it out loud not my will 
but yours be done. That's the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said that on his night of betrayal and arrest. Submitting, submitting to the Father. And we should do no less in light of grace and peace. Amen.